0: to sit beneath your word, to receive it as true and good and wise, um, to honor it by what we do with it when we leave this place. Help us, God. Help us do that. Help us um, by the fullness of your Spirit in each of our lives to receive and welcome and honor and obey your word. Um, Show yourself to us now by your Spirit, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Um, you ever been to court? I have, okay. I know what some of you are thinking, why was the pastor in court? Right? They're holding your hand, right? That's why pastors go to court, mostly, um, One of the things you realize when you're in court, right, the judge is king of the courtroom. And uh, that's what a guy named Clifton Williams found out. Clifton Williams was headed to the courthouse in Joliet, Illinois, to support his cousin, who was going to be sentenced. Now at the precise moment that Judge Daniel Rozak was reading the sentence, Clifton, let out a loud yawn. Because of that ill-timed yawn, the judge cited Clifton for contempt of court and handed down a sentence of six months of jail time. Now, ironically, his cousin, who was scheduled to be sentenced, only got probation. But Clifton, who went to court just to support his cousin, would go straight to jail. Clifton's father argued that a yawn is an involuntary action. But the prosecutor in the courtroom that day said it was not a simple yawn. It was a loud and boisterous attempt to disrupt the proceedings. So here's the lesson. Don't insult the judge. Don't insult the judge. Even by a yawn, it's a bad idea. It is a bad idea. And I want you to keep that in mind today um, because today we're going to court. Um, That is the setting of Psalm 50, if you'll open up your Bibles there. um, Psalm 50 is is a courtroom scene. It It has that feel to it. And as we'll see, uh, God is the judge in this court. Now, that's not a popular notion about God these days. Um, One study found that while 8 of 10 Americans are likely to describe God as loving, less than half are likely to, to describe God as judge. So, the other thing they found is that the more educated you are, the less likely you are to describe God as judge. It dips, for those who are college educated, it dips to less than 3 out of 10 would say God is judge. But this image of God is all over the scriptures, right? All over the scriptures. This is who God shows himself to be. Psalm 75, it is God who executes judgment putting down one lifting up another for the Lord is our judge the prophets say the Lord is our lawgiver the Lord is our King James the New Testament same teaching you also be patient establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door, referring to Christ, ready to return. And it was Jesus' own language about the Father. He says, do not marvel at this. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, hear God's voice. They'll come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So you can go cover to cover, and contrary to popular opinion these days, the Bible portrays God as a judge. And okay. our psalm, it's going to paint a similar portrait of God. So, Psalm 50, verse 1, a psalm of Asaph, says, The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth, From the rising of the sun to its setting. So God is introduced to us as the mighty one. God. The Lord. And what he's doing here, according to Alan Ross, is that the Hebrew text is heaping up these three titles for God, these three names for God, for a powerful beginning. The opening verse is a grand declaration of God's rule over all things. He is the mighty one. He speaks and he summons the earth. As its maker, the whole earth obeys his summons. And as we're going to see, it's a summons to court. It's a court where God is judge. Verse 2, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, and around him a mighty tempest. Zion, it's the place where God rules. It's where his throne is. And from there he shines forth, actively surrounded by judgment imagery. Imagery of fire and storm here represent the uncovering and the judging and even the purifying of sin. So you know how when you go to court, you're hoping that you're getting, um, how do you say this, the softer side of the judge that day, right? The lenient judge, kind of the toast judge. Not this judge, okay? That's not the imagery that's... Painted in this case. Verse 4. He, God, calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. So the courtroom scene is set. Heaven and earth are summoned as witnesses. And God is over all of creation. He's he's the judge over all creation. Heaven and earth are summoned by him, and they do his bidding. So this is no lower court judge, right? There is no higher court of appeal here. And he is a righteous judge. That means his judgments are Indisputable and true. There are no errant judgments. There are no mistrials. There are no appeals. God is judge. And his own people are the accused. Okay. Verse 7 Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. So clearly, God testifies against his own people. He does so as their God, the one they ought to be faithful to as a reflection of their covenant. He's their God. Now, it's a little confusing here because on the one hand, it sounds like their worship is acceptable. It says, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. But then on the other hand, right at the next phrase, it says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fold. So the problem wasn't that they weren't worshiping, they weren't offering sacrifices or they weren't even, it wasn't that they weren't offering them in the right way. The problem seems to lie somewhere else. Somehow, they have insulted the judge and their worship, their offerings are now unacceptable to him. We pick up on how in the next few verses. Verse 10. Every beast of the forest, God says, is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know All the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? See, the, the problem, it seems here, is that somehow they thought God needed their offering in some way. He is emphatic he does not need it right because the whole world belongs to him everything in it if he were hungry and that's a hypothetical because god has no unmet needs he is all sufficient if if he were hungry he wouldn't need their help because he owns it all he doesn't eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats Those things offer God no sustenance. Now, John Piper writes about this, and he says, you can see more clearly here what the insulting mindset was that the people were on trial for. They had a view of God that made Him dependent on them. They slipped into the religious notion that their gifts were somehow meeting God's needs and that He would be a loss without them. And his response is to say he does not need their sacrifices for two reasons. One, he's never hungry. He never eats. He is always totally satisfied with what he is in himself and what he does for his glory. His food is to do his will. God is an infinite ocean of supply, he says. Not a little water trough that needs filling with the buckets of our supply. Acts puts it this way. The book of Acts, chapter 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So what what they had done was they had made God small in their eyes. He's no longer the great, all-sufficient, holy, unique God. Instead, they made him needy, dependent, like the gods of the peoples around them. I ran across this description of um, a Hittite ritual for establishing a new temple for the goddess of the night. This is the way that they would sacrifice to their gods, okay? Some of the gods that surrounded Israel. They offer the ritual of blood with a kid, a young goat. Afterward, they offer the ritual of praise with the lamb. Afterward, the lamb is burned, and they bring for the deity all the stews, one warm bread, one sweet bread, one jug of beer, one pitcher of wine and they give to the deity to eat so the deity needs the people to feed him okay let's be clear god does not need our beer all right that's not our god okay we don't worship that god we worship a god who is all sufficient in all things always able to meet our need never needing us Pastor Jimmy Snowden writes, The Israelites' problem could have been the result of the infiltration of Canaanite theology, the surrounding people, their theology and practices, into their worship of Yahweh, their their God, the true God. Canaanite idolatry was in many ways a religion of equality, he says. The idol worshiper would fulfill a certain need for the needy idol, which then put the idol in a position where he was expected to fulfill one of the needs of the needy idol worshiper. Both the worshiper and the God were needy. That's not our God. That's not the God we worship. We worship the mighty one of Israel. Listen again to these verses, how they describe our God. Every beast of the forest is mine the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of goats? See, our God has no need of our offerings. He already owns it all. So you can see how insulting this would be to God. How he's made small by this kind of attitude. Now, the question for us, you know, we're always finding ourselves in these stories, right? So where are we in the courtroom? All right. We're not the judge. All right. Let's, let's be clear about that. We're not the judge. God has that role. And we're not the witnesses. Heaven and earth have that role. Guess what's left? We're the accused. We're God's people. That's us. How do we insult God by making him small? By, by assuming that he needs us, perhaps. And I, I think this is most often the sin of pastors and professors and Christian leaders. It can sound like this. We we begin to think that God needs us. God needs us. Um, For instance, I I planted this church, right, 25 years ago. And if they don't do what I think needs to be done, the wheels are going to come off this place. I mean, for gosh sakes, I built this thing. 25 years I've been here pastoring. And they don't listen to me, they're going to get what they deserve. What, what, what am I saying if I have that kind of attitude? What am I really saying? God needs me. He's dependent on me. The health and vitality of his church depends on me, on Larry. He really can't get along without me. That would be the very definition of folly. Okay. You know, sometimes if you're a generous person, you can fall into this problem. Maybe, you're, maybe you, God has given you a lot of resources, and you're generous with them. And you can start thinking, man, if it weren't for me, this church would be in trouble. They're never going to get that building paid off and in for me. And those intermissions projects, they cannot fund those things without me. I'm pretty much the guy. They need me. God needs me. God needs me and my gifts to make things happen. See, nothing could be further from the truth. Our God uses us not because of his need but because of his kindness. So we have elders at North Wake, right? They lead and shepherd our church. Remarkable men. Um, Some of them are professors and have PhDs and All kinds of things. They're important men. But if I was going to give that group of men, of which I am a part, a title, I'd borrow it from a recent movie. Here it is. Okay? God doesn't need us. spite of our PhDs and our whatever, you know, Ds we have, our THMs and MSs and BSs, we have lots of BSs in this this group. God doesn't need us. We need him. Okay? We desperately need him. God doesn't need us, but oh, how he wants us. Okay? Ellen Ross, in his commentary on this passage, says that um, they were performing the right ritual for the wrong reason. Not the animal God wanted, it was them. Now, there is a corollary that's equally troubling to thinking that God needs us. It is equally insulting to God, and that is to think we don't need God. We become independent. We become self-sufficient. And this is where the the analogy of parent and child breaks down when we talk about God. We're raising our children to be independent of us. It's a good thing. But that's not the case with God. God wants us to depend on him. But we are inclined towards independence and, and mostly this happens not not by intentionality necessarily, but just by forgetfulness. And it shows up most prominently when we forget to pray. Okay? We forget to pray, we've forgotten God. We've forgotten how much we need Him. And it, it looks like this. So you've got a busy day ahead, right? The day is full, and you're a little bit anxious about it, and so your intent is to start a little early to get a jump on the day so stuff happens in the morning as it always does and a little early turns into a little behind or a little late and now we're scrambling right we've got that day the busy day in front of us you can call it a day of trouble and we're running late so what do we forego What do we forego? We forego what we don't need. What don't we need? Well, too often we don't need prayer. We don't have time for prayer. Which is another way of saying we don't need God. We don't have time for God. At least not as much. We don't need him as much as we need something else. So is it your pattern to pray about your day before it starts, that morning, the day before, the night before, to pray about meetings, about classes, about papers, about tests, about conversations, about appointments, about travel, before they happen, to say to God, God, this is my day, it waits for me, and I need you. I need you. Um, There's this old saying that haunts us. It says a day without prayer is a boast against God. Are your days boastful? Are they insulting to God because you're saying, I don't need you. I got this. Do you evidence your need for God by preemptory prayer? I love the way O. Halsby writes about it in his book about prayer, called Prayer. He says, as far as I can see, prayer has been ordained only for the helpless. He says, it is the last resort of the helpless. Indeed, the very last way out. We try everything before we finally resort to prayer. So you see, in Psalm 50, their infidelity to God wasn't necessarily to false gods as much as it was to an elevated self. Okay. They thought they could handle it. They didn't need God. They trusted, perhaps, in their own works, thinking that God needed them. John Stott reminds us that this is absurd. He says, to suppose that he who sustains life should himself need to be sustained, that he who supplies our needs should himself need our supply, any attempt to tame or domesticate God to reduce him to the level of a household pet dependent on us for food and shelter is, again, a ridiculous reversal of roles. We depend upon God. He does not depend upon us. Do you ever find yourself quoting this little verse? I think it comes from Proverbs 32. It goes like this. God helps those who help themselves. Right? The idea is that God is most happy with, most honored by, those who pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, right? Um, And the thinking is that this is what God really wants from us to do our best and offer it to him and say, look what a great job I did for you, God. But there are two really important things to be mindful of in that thinking. First, there are only 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. Okay? That ain't in the Bible. It ain't scripture. It ain't true. Secondly, It is absolutely impossible to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It can't be done. Near as I can tell, this is about the best you can get by pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. (laughs) I think that is what this cow was trying to do. This is what you get. It can't be done. You can go home and try it. Grab your bootstraps. Pull yourself up. Go buy new boots. Can't. It can't be done. And this kind of theology, which is, this is theology, thinking about about God and his world, it's insulting to God. It makes him small. It makes him like other gods. Make-believe gods. It makes him like us, which makes him really small. Now, mercifully... The psalm ends this section and points us to a better way. God the judge is now God the deliverer. God the father we know him to be. And he shows us a a better way. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And perform your vows to the most high. And call, God says, Upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you, and you shall glorify, you shall honor, you shall exalt me. Offer to God. A sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows. Alan Ross explains these ideas to us because they're foreign to us. He says, when people received a blessing or an answer to prayer from God, they were to go to the sanctuary with a sacrifice to be offered as a peace offering, celebrating the fact that they were at peace with God, had received his help. So when the animal was on the altar, they were to stand there and declare what God had done for them. And then they would all eat the sacrifice together as a communal meal, The meaning would be clear to all. They were making a sacrifice to acknowledge that they had needed God and that now they were praising him for meeting that need. That's what a thanksgiving offering is. It's saying, I needed God. And thanks be to God, this is how he helped me. He says, now, in this context, paying their vows had to do with offering their praise. During their prayers, the people often vowed the praise they would offer once God answered their prayers. So, God, if you will deliver me, I will give you glory, kind of thing. And once God answered the prayer, then the worshiper was oath bound to fulfill the vow and to offer praise and thanksgiving. Pastor Jimmy Snowden helps us more. He says, The thanksgiving giving offering thus at its foundation is an offering which arises out of a recognition of both the self-sufficiency of God and the need that humans have of sustenance, redemption, and life which God alone can offer. It is this sort of offering along with its humble needy posture which the Israelites were failing to bring to God. The Israelites were neither seeing themselves as helpless beggars, nor God as a compassionate Savior. And therefore, they were not dependently crying out to him in midst of their trouble. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. See, God offers a better prescription for his people than working harder he says, there is a kind of acceptable worship. Call on me in times of trouble. That sets the order of our universe right. We are needy and God is great. Just, when, just by asking, we are declaring that we need him. Even in the asking, we are exalting God is great. He is above us. We need his help. He is glorified just by the asking. Think think of this situation. You've probably experienced it, maybe in your home. My wife is in the kitchen preparing a meal. She encounters an obstinate jar. What does she do? She brings it to me. She says to me, can you open this? I say, give me that jar. I grab that jar, and then I give it to Josiah, and I say, Josiah, (laughs) no, 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 I'm up for this. I got this. The testosterone is beginning to pump. This jar is mine. I get the little rubber thing out of the drawer. (laughs) I open the jar, right? Just by asking, what is she saying? You are stronger. Open this for me. With full legitimacy, when we ask God, what are we saying? You are greater. You are the mighty one. Open this jar for me, which I cannot open on my own. Just our asking, just our praying exalts God as great right? Just in the asking, God is no longer insulted. He is exalted. But when we do not pray, he is not exalted. He is insulted that we think we do not need him. God loves it when we ask. Proverbs. Chapter 15, verse 8, makes it clear. The sacrifice of the wicked is detestable to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. The prayer of the upright is his delight. Just by asking, we are exalting God as great. Just by failing to ask. We're insulting him as little. But there is more. The psalmist tells us there is more than just asking, right? Um, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. And you shall glorify me. From this humble place... This helpless place. The psalmist says it's the day of trouble. It's the day when jars cannot be opened. Okay. We are to call upon God. I love what O. Halsby says. He says prayer and helplessness are inseparable. Only he who is helpless can truly pray. And God promises to hear our helpless cries and to deliver. Call upon me in the day of trouble, God says, and I will deliver you. This is his promise. And this is who God is on almost every page of the Bible. He's our deliverer, He's our rescuer, He's our Savior. This is who God is. Um, Exodus say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. God is our deliverer. First Samuel 7, Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. God is our deliverer. Psalm 34, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. God is our deliverer. Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God, from cover to cover, is not only our judge in Scripture, he's also our deliverer. He's our advocate. He's our rescuer. And I know it's, it's hard not to think, yeah, yeah, but what about that time when I needed God to deliver me? And by all appearances, he did not. What about that? And, you know, those are, those are difficult things. But one thing that helps me with those things is to step back and get perspective and say, should my one thing outweigh the cover-to-cover description of God in Scripture as our deliverer? Should my one thing nullify that? Should my one thing nullify all the other times in my life when He was my deliverer? Because there's a whole lot of them. A whole, whole lot of them. And he is, according to Scripture, eager to deliver, longing to deliver his people. Halsby catches it when he says, Our helplessness is one continuous appeal to God's Father heart. He is forever occupied with hearing this prayer of ours and satisfying all our needs. Night and day he is active in so doing. Although we as a rule do not even notice it, not to speak of thanking him for it. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So God here promises to deliver us in the day of trouble when we come to him and call on him and exalt him is great. Sometimes the deliverance comes to us from the trouble, oftentimes it comes through the trouble. But God is committed to being our deliverer and to delivering us from trouble. That's his history from Exodus to the cross. He is our deliverer. And we are fools not to call upon his name with hopeful hearts on our day of trouble. And when we do, God gets the glory both before and after the deliverance. Okay, He gets glory before. He's exalted before by the asking. And after, he's exalted by the thanksgiving. We glorify him by the asking, and we glorify him by the thanksgiving. Uh, Fascinating interview with the New York Times and um, talk show host and comedian Stephen Colbert. Um, In 1974, when Colbert was 10, his father, a doctor, and his brothers, Peter and Paul, the two closest to him in age, died in a plane crash while flying to a prep school in New England. Um, Colbert says, there's a common explanation that profound sadness leads to someone's becoming a comedian. He says, but I'm not sure that's a proven equation in my case. He says, I'm not bitter about what happened to me as a child, and my mother was instrumental in keeping me from being so. He said this, the writer says, in a tone so humble and sincere that his character would never have used it. He said, she taught me to be grateful for my life regardless of what that entailed. And that's directly related to the image of Christ on the cross and the example of sacrifice that he gave us. What she taught me is that the deliverance of God, the deliverance God offers you from pain is not no pain. It's that the pain is actually a gift. Those are wise words, especially for a comedian. Are you consistently exalting God by your thankfulness, or are you forgetting about Him? Are you consistently thanking God for your deliverance in your day's troubles, or do you forget about Him? You have a pattern, even a discipline of thankfulness that marks your days. Maybe it's just at mealtime. Maybe it's the way you end your day. But it is an essential part of exalting, not insulting God. Our thanksgiving exalts Him as great Would you say that your days are marked most by insulting or exalting God, based on what we've been talking about this morning? Are you calling upon his name when you are troubled and giving him thanks for his many, many acts of rescue and kindness? See, this is how we love God back in times of trouble. We call upon his name, and we offer prayers of thanksgiving when he delivers us. On both sides of trouble, we exalt rather than insult. And that is how we love God back. On those days. On the troubling days. It's our privilege today to come to this table, helpless. Mindful of our helplessness. We remember together how much we need Christ. No one comes to this table and brings anything to it that helped with the lifting of the burden of their sin. We are all helpless to cover our own sin. We cannot wash it away. We cannot work it away. We cannot explain it away. But Christ can. Christ has. That is what he did on the cross. He bore our sins, the fullness of their penalty, so that we would not have to. And so, we come to this table and we are thanking, we're remembering, and we are thanking him for his deliverance, for his rescue. If you are not confident that you know Christ, then the invitation to you is trust Christ. Don't come to the table and pretend. Instead, trust Christ. Trust that He is your deliverer, that He has borne your sin, and you you cling to that as true. The table at Northwake is open to everyone who believes in Christ and is willing to repent of their sin and come to Christ seeking grace that is greater than their sin. And so we come together now to remember that on the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus gathered with his friends. And he took bread and he broke it and he said, This is my body. It is broken for you. Do this. In remembrance of me and in the same way after the meal he took the cup and he said this is the new covenant in my blood it is for the forgiveness of sins do this also in remembrance of me let's pray so father here here we are the expendables the helpless ones. And yet, by grace, your sons, your daughters, adopted by the great work of Jesus on the cross on our behalf. And today, Lord, as we come to this table, we want to right our worlds. We want, we want to bow low and exalt you as great. Only you could bear our sin. Only you could wash us clean as white as snow. And so we come and we remember and we worship and we exalt you as great as we give you thanks.